The song of redemption is a sweet song indeed. In fact, the sweetest song. And it is the subject of redemption that we study tonight, really, in our continuing study of the epistle of Paul to the Colossians. We're in chapter 1 in our series in this great epistle that exalts the Christ as the fullness of the Godhead bodily, not as some created being, but as God himself who became man, dwelt among men. And remember that in this epistle, Paul was dealing with a Judaic Gnostic heresy that was threatening the church at Colossae, as there were those who were claiming that that deity could have no immediate uh, direct contact with humanity. Therefore, it would be an impossibility for God to become man, for Christ, if he was deity, to become uh, a human being. And yet the Apostle Paul uh, asserts that indeed he is not only uh, a man or was not only, not only a man, but that he was and is the Christ, the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and that indeed God did become man and dwell among man, as John in his gospel account reminds us in John 1.14, uh, the word, living word became flesh and dwelt among us. In our last study of these verses in chapter 1 of Colossians, we noted Paul's prayer for the people of God. And Paul was a man of prayer who prayed fervently, who prayed regularly, and who enjoined that regular and fervent prayer upon all uh, to whom he addressed his epistles as he wrote to the Thessalonians, pray without ceasing, 1 Thessalonians 5 and verse 17. He was a man who gave thanks to God, as he pointed out in verse 3 of this letter, praying always for you, that is, these Colossian brethren. And we noted the particulars of of Paul's prayer in our study last time. And the product of being partakers, the final point we made in verse 12 of Colossians 1 last time was that Paul prayed for the thanksgiving that they would feel, that they would always give thanks for the one who had qualified them, that is God the Father, to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in the light. And we talked about the fact that there are products of being partakers of that inheritance, being qualified. And the qualifications simply are meeting the terms of the gospel, believing in Christ, repenting of our sins, confessing Christ, and then being buried with him in baptism for the forgiveness of sins, thus becoming qualified and thus becoming partakers of the inheritance of the saints and the light because of the sacrifice of the sinless Son of God who made that participation in that inheritance possible for us. And having said that, having written that, and having reminded them of that uh, blessed privilege that they enjoyed, and the products of that, uh, the uh, being partakers, the products being pardon, remember, verse 14, we'll look at tonight, redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, and on over to verse 20, peace through the blood of the cross. The blood of the cross has brought pardon and peace. Those are the products of our being partakers of the inheritance of the saints in the light. And oh, what joy that should evoke within us. And oh, what peace that should produce. The peace that surpasses all understanding. He continues the redemption theme, if you will. Uh, having said we're partakers of the inheritance of the saints in the light. He then, in verse 13, as we begin our uh, study tonight, 
in verse 13 writes, He has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us, or translated as, uh, as, uh, as the King James says, into the kingdom of the Son of His love. Do we understand and appreciate to the fullest extent what Paul is expressing here in terms of the blessed position, the wonderful privilege that we have as a result of that transference, if you will, that conveyance into the kingdom of the Son of His love. Do we understand and appreciate the kind of, of change, absolute transformation that has taken place in the life of everyone who has undergone this deliverance? We talked about deliverance this morning. We talked about it in regard to the deliverance that typified the deliverance about which now Paul writes. That was the deliverance at the Red Sea. As God's people then crossed the Red Sea as a result of the mercy of God and the power of God and as a result of their faith in God and their response to His power and to His mercy and availing themselves of that power and mercy by showing their faith and crossing the Red Sea. A deliverance that is mentioned some 100 times in Scripture. A great deliverance indeed. But it pales in comparison to the deliverance about which Paul writes here. He has delivered us. The fulfillment of that deliverance long ago, as great as it was, the greatest deliverance of all, the deliverance from sin and the redemption from sin is depicted here. He has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of His love. It's interesting that that word conveyed, which is also uh, uh, rendered, as I mentioned a moment ago, translated us, is a word that was used to, to depict the transference of a particular people from one location to another, uh, from one country to another, the moving of a people from one place to another. And that's interesting in that it suggests to us that we were in a different place in a different kingdom, if you will, and we were before our conversion, if we're Christians tonight, we were in a kingdom that is characterized as dark, as the power of darkness. And the ruler of that kingdom from which we've been moved from that kingdom to another kingdom, the ruler of that kingdom is Satan. And our ruler now is Christ. And that's the contrast that the Apostle Paul draws here. We've been moved, as it were. We've been transported. We've been conveyed. We have moved from one place to another. We have moved from allegiance to one ruler to the allegiance to allegiance to another. And it is a complete and absolute transformation that depicts a complete and absolute change of attitude, change of action, change of aspiration, Everything has changed, and it is a complete and utter contrast that is drawn between the two. And it's vitally important that every child of God understand and appreciate how different we are and how different we are to continue to be as a part of this kingdom, which is the church of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We are separate from that former kingdom. We are not to have the aspirations that we once had, not the allegiance that we once had, not the actions that we once had, not the attitude that we once had. Yes, we remain in this world, but we are no longer 
of this world. Paul understood that beautifully. He wrote about it very graphically and eloquently as he reminds us of just how truly thankful we should be that God through Jesus Christ has made possible this kind of change because we were in a kingdom of darkness under the power of Satan. And yet because of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, all that has changed. But notice something also very significant about that word conveyed. In what tense is it found? Past tense. He doesn't say he has delivered us from the power of darkness and will one day convey us into the kingdom of the Son of his love. Now, it would need to read that way if the dominant theory in the denominational world were true. It would have to read that way if the whole idea of a future kingdom is a valid idea or valid concept. And yet that's the dominant concept. As we've talked about it so often in lessons from this pulpit and in, in classes, the dominant theory in the denominational world today is that the kingdom is yet to come. The church is here now, but the church is not the kingdom. The church is that parenthetical uh, institution. It is that plan B that came into existence, remember, because Christ came into this world to establish his earthly kingdom and the Jews rejected him, crucified him, and thwarted his plans. And so he went with another plan until such time as he'll come again. And this time he will establish that literal earthly kingdom and reign for a literal thousand years on planet earth. What is there in this verse that would give any kind of credence whatsoever to that theory? Nothing. Is there anything in this verse that would absolutely provide the death knell to that theory? Absolutely. It's just as clear as can be, as plain as the nose on your face as the expression goes. He has past tense delivered us from the power of darkness and past tense conveyed us into what? Into the kingdom of the Son of His love. That means that if we've undergone that process, we are in the kingdom. It is not a yet future institution. It has to be a present institution because of the past tense that is used here in delivered and in conveyed. The church and the kingdom are not two different institutions. They are one and the same. Remember Matthew 16, 18, and 19. Upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. I will give to you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Whatsoever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatsoever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. I will build my church, give you the keys to the kingdom. And so what Paul writes here is simply the fact that we've been conveyed into that kingdom just as Jesus promised that his obedient followers would be conveyed into that kingdom at the point in time at which he established it. What was that point in time? It is not a future point in time. When you look at passages that precede Acts 2, they will generally look at what? They'll look at the kingdom as something that is future. Matthew 3, verse 1, in those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is what? At hand. Near at hand, Jesus preached the same thing, Matthew 4, 17. 
points out. The passages prior to Acts 2 point to a coming kingdom that had not yet come. The passages after Acts 2 look back upon a kingdom that has been established. This is one of those passages. He has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed, past tense looking back to it, into the kingdom of the Son of His love. Therefore, if the passages before Acts 2 look toward a kingdom that had yet to come, and the passages after Acts 2 look back to a kingdom that was established sometimes in the, sometime in the past, what point in time in the past was that kingdom established? Acts chapter 2. That's where it is, and that's why it's called the hub of the Bible, that chapter. Because there, the fulfillment of the promise of Jesus to, fulfill, to build his church is it comes to its fruition, just as Jesus promised the apostles in Acts chapter 1. When they came and said, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? They themselves, as we have said, had a misconception about the nature of that kingdom as they asked that question. Jesus didn't take the time to correct their misapprehension. He knew that it would obviously become clear to them in due time, but he said it's not for you to know the times or the seasons. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. When did that Holy Spirit come upon them? Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. And that's when the kingdom came, when they were given the power by the Holy Spirit to preach the gospel for the first time and to usher some 3,000 precious souls into the kingdom of the Lord, which is the church of Christ. Now, is there a difference between being in the kingdom of the Son of His love and being in the Son of His love? Some would say yes. Many would say yes, as a matter of fact. Many would say that being in the Son of His love, that is, being in Christ, is something totally different than being in the church. And even if they didn't make a difference between the church and the kingdom, they would still say that being in Christ is something separate and apart from being in the church in terms of its absolute essentiality. They are not synonymous in terms of being one and the same. That is, they would not contend that if you're in Christ, you're in the church, and if you're in the church, you're in Christ, and you don't separate the two. But let's see if Paul separates the two. From verse 13, having said that we've been conveyed, writing now to Christians, we've been conveyed into the kingdom of the Son of His love, Notice then what he next writes, verse 14. In whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. Conveyed, past tense, into the kingdom of the Son of his love, in whom, that is, in the Son of his love. But do those two verses separate the Son from the kingdom, or do they identify the Son with the kingdom? The latter is the case, isn't it? Those two verses, back to back, cannot possibly, cannot possibly suggest or intimate in any way whatsoever that being in the kingdom of the Son of His love is different than being in the Son Himself. Paul basically uses the two terms interchangeably. Into the kingdom of the Son of His love in whom? Could he have written into the kingdom of the Son of His love in which we have redemption? Yes, he could have. Because redemption in the Son is redemption in the kingdom of the Son of His love, and you cannot separate the two. 
You cannot separate the two. And as we go further in just a few moments, we will clearly see Paul use another term for that kingdom that is often used in Scripture that clearly shows that the kingdom is the same as the body and that the body is the same as the kingdom and that those two terms are used interchangeably. To be in the kingdom of the Son of His love is equivalent to being in the Son of His love in whom we have what? Redemption. Singing the sweet song of redemption. Redemption suggests captivity. It goes back to the idea that we looked at in verse 13 of being in another kingdom at one time into the power of darkness under the rule of Satan and yet there was someone who was willing to redeem us. There was someone who was willing to pay the price of redemption. There is someone, there was someone who was willing to become that ransom. And that one was Jesus Christ. But specifically, the ransom was through his blood. Through his blood. Without that blood, there could be no redemption. The blood was the ransom. The blood was the ransom. Hebrews 2. Hebrews 2, 13 and 14. Or 14, rather, and uh, 15. Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is, the devil, and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. There's the redemption process described by the Hebrews writer as Christ shared in the same flesh and blood that we have, that through that death that he died as a human being as well as God on earth, he was able to destroy the kingdom of the power of darkness and the ruler of that kingdom, Jesus Christ. I mean, the ruler of that kingdom, Satan. And Jesus Christ released those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. What does that tell us about how we should respond to the redemption about which Paul writes here and about which the writer of Hebrews reminds us in those verses we have just noticed? It tells us that we've been redeemed and therefore released. Released from what? So many things. Released from the guilt of, of sin that plagues those who are burdened by sin. We have the access to the forgiveness of those sins continually as we walk in the light, as God is in the light, as we confess those sins. That guilt is gone. That guilt is gone. We don't live in guilt. Beyond that, there is that fear of death that has been removed from every child of God. In other words, we know that because of the redemptive work of Jesus Christ and because of his blood, we have the forgiveness of sins, which brings peace and which brings a release from a fear that characterized us before we were Christians that, that we don't look at in the same way anymore. We don't look at death the way so many look at death. Why? Because of the redemptive work of Jesus Christ. We have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our sins. And yet, again, where is that blood reached? Where is that blood contacted? 
Well, there's no question that it had to be the blood. Hebrews 9.22 says, without shedding of blood, there's no remission of sins. Hebrews 9.13 and 14 reminds us that if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? But where is that conscience purged? Where is that conscience cleansed? When it comes into contact with the blood of Jesus Christ. When is that? We looked at a passage earlier in a previous study, Hebrews 10 and verse 22. Let us draw near. We can now, the Hebrews writer tells these Christians. Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. We can do that because of what? Having, looking back, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience. When? And our bodies washed with pure water. And so the blood that redeems us and brings about the forgiveness of sins and brings us into contact with every spiritual blessing in Jesus Christ is reached only when our bodies are washed in pure water. That's baptism. And it's at that point in time that we come forth cleansed with a clean conscience, not by the water, but by the blood. Well, in verse 15... The Apostle Paul goes on, this one who has been our Redeemer, this one through, through whose blood we are given the forgiveness of our sins, who is he? He is the image of the invisible God. He is the image of the invisible God. Go back to Hebrews and see a similar statement in Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 3. Who being the brightness of his glory, this is Christ about whom the writer is speaking. And the, listen to it, express image of his person. The express image of his person. Here, the writer declares in the Colossian letter, he is the image. And that word indicates not some sort of reasonable likeness, but the mirror image. He is the express image, as the Hebrews writer declares in 1.3. He is the mirror image of the invisible God. You want to know what God is like. You want to know what God's nature is. Then you have it in Christ. He is not some created being, but he is rather the firstborn, as the New King James renders it, over all creation. Some translations say the firstborn of creation, but he is not a created being. Why then is the word firstborn used here? When we talk about our firstborn child, we're talking about a child that has been born. Is that not the meaning of it here? No, it is not the meaning of it here. It is simply a word that is often used to depict preeminence, to depict supremacy. He has the preeminence of the firstborn. You remember that uh, under the Old Testament, you had the firstborn child who had the double portion of the inheritance as a result of that, privileges and blessings that pertained to the firstborn. All that Paul is affirming here is that Christ has that preeminence, not that he is the firstborn of creation, not that he is the first created being. Now, there are those in the religious world who claim that he is just that, a created being. But the Apostle Paul cannot possibly be using that term firstborn 
to mean a created being because, down in verse 17, which we'll look at in a moment, he says he is before all things, and in him all things consist. For Paul to say, or to be indicating here, or intending to say that he was the firstborn created being, and then to turn around two verses later or so and say he's before all things and in him all things consist would be a contradiction within the space of two or three verses. So obviously what he's saying here is he's the image of the invisible God. He is God. He is deity, that is, a member of the Godhead. He is the preeminent one over all creation because he is the one by whom and through whom and for whom all things were created. And he'll make that assertion in just a moment. Here it is. For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created through him and for him. He's not the first created being. He is the one through whom and by whom all beings, heaven and earth, were Created. He is before all things. And that's the next statement. He is before all things. And notice this. And in him all things consist. By his power and by his word, things were brought into existence that exist today. And by that word, they will be taken out of existence. And until such time, they are sustained by him. That's the kind of awesome power that is attributed here by the inspired writer to the Son of God who was the Word, capital W, before he became flesh and dwelt among us and who has now gone back to the Father having achieved the redemptive work for which we should be grateful beyond expression to make possible our reunion with him one day. And in the final verse at which we'll look tonight, he says, and he is the head of the body, the church. He is the head of the body, the church. Any difference between the body, the church, and the kingdom, back up at verse 13, into which we have been conveyed? Any difference between the church the body and the kingdom of the Son of His love in the latter part of verse 13. Absolutely none. They are all terms that are used interchangeably. The church is His body. The body is the church. And His preeminence is simply being set forth further here by Paul as he says He's the head of that body, the church, who is the beginning. Salvation begins with Christ. Without him there is no salvation. He is also here, this verse depicts, the firstborn from the dead. There's that word firstborn again in the sense that he is the preeminent one who has been raised from the dead. It is also the case that he's the firstborn from the dead in the sense that he is the first to rise from the dead who will never again see death and never again saw death. There were those before Christ's resurrection who were raised from the dead, both in the Old Testament and in New Testament times, but no one else 
with the preeminence of his resurrection as Christ's resurrection is preeminent to all others. He is preeminent over all who have been or ever will be raised from the dead and all will be one day raised from the dead. He is preeminent over them all, the firstborn, the preeminent one over all the dead. Why? Because he is raised never to die again, for one thing, and because of the other things about which the Apostle Paul has reminded us here in these verses. But as we close our thoughts tonight, think about the head of the body, the church. A passage, among others, in Ephesians, and there are those in Ephesians 1, 22, and 23. Uh, he put all things under his feet, gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body. This is the same, same affirmation that Paul makes here. He's the head of the body, the church. How many bodies? One. How many heads? One. Ephesians 4, verse 4. There is one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father, but earlier he begins, in the earlier part of that section from Ephesians 4, 4 through verse 7, one body. One body. What is that body? It is the church. Who is its head? The Christ. Where must I be in order to be saved by Christ? In that body, Ephesians 5, 23. The husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Colossians 1.18, he's the head of the body, the church. Ephesians 5.23, he's the savior of the body, which is the church. He's the head over the saved, and the saved are in the body. There is but one, and there is but one head. And to be among the saved, I must be a part of that body. It's tragic indeed tonight that there is so much confusion, so much false teaching, on the subject of the kingdom, that it is not the body, that it is not the church, that there are many bodies, all sorts of false teaching, all which could be, all of which could be corrected and fully clarified if people would just spend time with just these verses that we've looked at tonight and a few related passages. And looking at them objectively, one would have to conclude that to be in Christ is to be among the saved. No question about it. To be in Christ, we must reach his blood. The only way to reach that blood is by a faith that leads us to repent, confess, and be buried in baptism. That when we have reached that blood and have been raised, we are raised to walk in newness of life and we're added to the kingdom, which is the kingdom now has to be because Paul says those... Colossians had already been conveyed into it. And that that kingdom is also identified in this same context with the body. And that that body is clearly said to be the church in verse 18. And add a few passages from Ephesians to reinforce, and you clearly have that one cannot be saved outside the church, that there is but one, that Christ is its head, and surely I can identify it if indeed I must be in it in order to be saved. How totally cruel it would be for the God of heaven to tell me through his word, you've got to be a member of the church 
for which my son shed his precious blood. But best to you in trying to find out what that church is or how it can be identified. What a cruelty that would be. No, if God says, and he has, that we must be in the body to be saved, he has identified that body, and therefore we can as well. And tonight, if you're not a part of that body, we plead with you to become a part of it by a belief that leads you forward to repent, to confess Jesus as the Christ, and to be buried in baptism for the remission of sins. If you need to come home to your first love and have us pray with you and for you for forgiveness of sin in your life, we plead with you to do that now as we stand to sing to encourage you.